All right, I hate silence so much. Oh my gosh, just doing that was like, got my heart racing. Um, if you know me, if you've heard either of my vehicles, you know I hate silence. I'm not good with it. But did you feel what happened just there? You, you probably zoned in on something. You probably paid a little bit more attention. Maybe you noticed something when I was thinking through this last night. I spent time in silence. I noticed there's a cobweb between those two lights. Maybe you looked at my facial expression. Maybe you finally noticed the really loud air conditioning we have here. Because there's something that comes with silence. When I was at uh, Ball State, you know, before I was a youth pastor, I wanted to be a music teacher, and so I took a conducting class. Literally a class, how to wave your arms in front of people. That was a class. It's harder than you think. It's harder to, like, get up there and, you know, do the things, and, you know, you're thinking of all the, you know, you got that going on. And, uh, and I was known as the fun guy, you know, that's why I'm the youth pastor, you know, more happy, a little bit more like let's go and excitement. And so I would always have some kind of game or like something that I would do with the band we conducted. And, I, and finally they gave me a slow piece, which I had been avoiding all semester. And so I got a good idea. And so I went up and I didn't say a word. I walked up, I went to the whiteboard and I wrote the name of the piece and I pointed at it so they knew what to turn to. And I didn't say anything, and I pulled him up, and I mean, every eye was on me. Every eye, you could, I mean, there was nothing moving, and I conducted it, and it was so nice, because they were so focused, they were so in on it, and at the end, I cut off, and I said, okay, now, and you could feel everyone, just the shoulders relaxed, and finally, like, they're like, oh, thank goodness, Brett's talking again, and, and everything's okay, he's not mad at us, you know, and the, all those thoughts that you have when, in that moment of silence, but there was still silence. But among the silence, there was rustling, there was relaxation, there was a moment of breathing. And as we look at this today, we're looking at this idea of switching our silence. We're looking at this idea that 400 years had gone by that they're waiting for something to happen. We see the end of the Old Testament, and then there's 400 years of silence, that anticipation. And they were waiting, right? It says in Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. In Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will, God will, there will. They were looking forward with anticipation to finally this breaking of silence. And so there's 400 years of it, and then Zacharias makes a wrong move and gets like six more months of it as they mute him. And then here comes God. And I love this. I love this switching of silences where we're no longer saying, is, he, is it going to happen? Is God going to send his son? But it changes to the silence that accompanies Job 42 when Job is hit with God's sovereignty and he says, I uttered words which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. We now have a silence, not of anticipation, not that silence that, you know, we know that silence. We know that after a, a hard question, you know, the silence after, will you marry me? And you're hoping they say yes, right? Or the silence that comes after, we need to talk. Or the silence that comes after they kick a field goal and win the game. And what was that Colts game last night? That was awful. Where you're like, please miss. And, and they don't. And, and we know that silence and that, that bubbling up. But now this is a different silence. This is a silence that comes knowing God is on the throne it's the silence when you're sitting next to a loved one on a ride home. The silence when you see the ocean and you're just sitting there taking it all in. This is a new silence that we're approaching because God sent his son. And we can't miss the sovereignty of God. God, we can't miss all of that. I can't even get past the first verse without totally reminding myself that this all started with God. 
This was all him. He begins a work today that we're looking at with this unexpected announcement. We're seeing a work that is going to be carried to the cross, to the grave, to the resurrection, to the ascension for your and my salvation. That is what we are looking at today, and this is just the start. This is phase one. This is the beginning of the changing of your and my life. We cannot miss God's sovereignty of this. So if you'll join me in uh, 26 through 33 of Luke 1, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, through a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And consider what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. There is so much of God's sovereignty here. Sovereignty means absolute power, absolute authority. I often think of it just to get in my own head of God's plan, of God's perfect motioning, that each and every part of this was started and pulled off by God. Because notice, even in verse 1, we get it right there, the angel Gabriel was sent by God. You don't see this of the angel mentioned that went to Zacharias. Um, not that God wasn't moving, not that God didn't send that angel, but Luke was so careful with how he wrote this book. You look at the first four verses, Luke makes it clear. He says, I interviewed people. I wrote this purposefully. As you read this book, you see these sections, and he puts them in topical orders where he looks at these themes, and he's so careful. And here he makes that note, God sent this angel. This is all God. It was nothing of us. There was no big moment where someone connected some dots. There was no you know, perfect prayer that finally sent it off. There was no tomb raider hitting the secret button you know, in the crypt. There's nothing like that that sent this off outside of God's love for us. We see it in Romans 5. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In God's sovereignty and grace, he did this, and we brought nothing. And we have to understand that, because we can't understand the rest without it. If you look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, unless any man should boast. You hold that, and you say, it's not works, I didn't do this, I didn't deserve this, I don't deserve the salvation given to me, but so you can go do Ephesians 2, 10 which says so that we can go do the works set before us in Christ Jesus, because he's already taken the credit for those. But anything, as we were reading this, anything we've decided we've done is a tarnish to the gospel. It doesn't work that way. It's like taking the most beautiful piece of music you've ever heard, for me, probably something by Wagner, he's my favorite, and it's this huge, just harmonically balanced, wonderful, tear-jerking, exciting piece of music that you just can't believe, and then saying, I'm going to write three or four bars of this. I'm going to try my hand at it. And you've never picked up an instrument, right? It's saying, I'm going to try my best at this. But God has already written it. He's making this happen. And we can't, I, I need to make this so clear, it wasn't from what we did. We had no part in it. Because God placed this all together in his sovereignty. This was the plan the whole time that he would send his son. 
And we see his sovereignty and we see his grace as he talks to Mary. The, uh, the angel comes in and says, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. What he's saying is, uh, when he says favored one, he's saying Mary endowed with grace. He's saying, Mary, God's grace has been shown to you, just as it has been shown to you and I as we look at salvation, as we look at how, what he did on the cross for us. So we see the good news being sent to Mary and Mary accepting that. Saying, Mary, grace has been shown and, and her life is getting to carry our Savior. Said, Blessed are among you. And I love Mary's reaction because I think it's, it should be ours. What does Mary do? It says when she saw him, she does two things. She's firstly troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this is. As we look at salvation, we see, right? We feel and we think on it. She looks at and she's distressed, but then she thinks about the angel's message. She considers it. Oftentimes we think of salvation as a transcending emotional experience. I see it a lot, especially in like student ministries. And I love this quote by Samuel Chadwick. Tesla your uh, Christmas card is a great bookmark, by the way. Um, <laughs> a religion of mere emotion and sensationalism is the most terrible of all curses that can come upon any people. The absence of reality is sad enough, but the aggravation of pretense is a deadly sin. The more we decide, the, you know, salvation needs to be emotional and to connect with God, we have to have all of these feelings pouring out of us, we're going we're gonna to run into trouble because it's a balance. If we think that way, we find that we think we need, and I see this in students, I see this often where they think, okay, a worship concert's finally coming up, I can finally really connect with God. Maybe we say, we start to theorize scripture that's actually highly practical, we get burnt out quickly when we haven't felt emotion toward God in a moment. And it makes it so much about us. And there is something to say about getting too academic. That same man later said, truth without enthusiasm, morality without emotion, ritual without soul are things Christ unsparingly condemned. Destitute of fire, they are nothing more than a godless philosophy, an ethical system, and a superstition. So as we feel and as we get excited about the gospel and we take in this truth and we get excited about Christmas and we finally get in the Christmas spirit because finally, you know, it's snowing and all that and we're, we're getting excited, we also ponder this and we think about this. The word of God not only breaks our hearts, but it blows our mind. It's an entire human experience that we must feel. I love this. There's the academic saying, who is God? And then there's that feeling saying, look at what he's done for me. It's both. So we see Mary's response, and then God shows his sovereignty in two ways. Firstly, he names his son. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. In Matthew 1.21, the angel explains, uh, he says uh, to Joseph, and she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. The name of Jesus means God is salvation, showing us that in God's sovereignty, this was the plan the whole time. And again, this is so cool because we haven't seen God name himself in a moment where in, you know, we see it in Exodus where he names himself. He says, who are you? He says, I am who I am. And here he's saying, I am salvation. This is God. This is Jesus that we're looking at. He is everything to our salvation. He is every part of this. With no Jesus, we have no relationship. We have have no religion. It's all hinging on him. 
That's why we sing his name. It's why we sing what a beautiful name. It's why we sing isn't the name. It's why we sing Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. God names himself, showing that Jesus is his natural son. As the father would have named his son in this time, and would have made it so clear. Here God saying his name will be Jesus. It's been my plan the whole time that he'll be salvation. And then he gets, goes further, and he shows his legal authority as well. The angel says twice. At the beginning, he starts with Joseph of the house of David. And at the end, he said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. There's a legality. They would have checked this. When Jesus came down he would, they would have said, and said, I am the son of God, they would have looked at the scriptures and they would have checked his legal authority. Was he actually from the line of David? And we see that he was, but God was so careful about this. Whereas you look at Joseph's lineage, which is in uh, the beginning of Matthew, you can see that he came from a line of kings, but there's one named Jehoiakim, who was uh, the king when they were brought into captivity, and his bloodline was actually cursed. He says, no, no descendant of yours will reign on the throne past this. And you might think, well, then that would be the end. But then here in God's holiness, he has Mary, whose blood would have been Jesus, who's Mary's, or she was his natural mother, and her line, as you look at Luke 4, or at the end of 3, I think it is, he says, this, he follows this lineage, and it's totally perfect. So his father is correct and his mother is correct. And I just, I love this. Because guys, I am not a history buff. That is not what I do. People tell me history facts. And I usually respond with, that's nice. And I keep going because I'm like, I don't know how that affects me. And, uh, you know, or I, I don't really read that much about it. But I, I've been reading through the Bible in a year. I'm seven days out. Let's go. Uh, do it. It's, it's totally worth it. And, and as you go through First and Second Kings, it's wild because you follow this lineage. You see David, and God makes these promises to him. And then you see the, the, the rain go, and as kings, and it's passed down and passed down. And, and these guys are a mess. All through First and Second Kings, there's a king that, you know, would be wonderful and be like, we need to go back to God. And then immediately there'd be another king that would just fail in every way possible. And this lineage gets moved around. And you keep thinking, how is God going to pull this? But through all of it, God is looking at this little lineage. God is following this little line. And I ask, how do we think we're outside of God's sovereignty if he was so careful about a promise? His sovereignty is in every aspect of your life. He has a plan for you, a wonderful plan for you. And to reject that is to reject God's character. To say, God, I don't think you know what you're doing, which is what we do when we get distressed over our, our country and, and turmoil. We think, God, what are you doing? Or, God, I think, I, I think you're on the wrong timeline for me. God, I think I should have had this by now. All of it's saying, God, I'm going to reject who you say you are. But we look at God saying, you are sovereign and I am going to trust you because you've sent your son. And I know I've spent a lot of time on God's sovereignty, but it's a massive part of this because if not, you're, if you get, try and get outside of this or decide maybe God's not totally in control, you're going to miss a huge part of verse 37. If you look at 34 and 38 with me, or 34 through 38, it says, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And I love that because you can do the math without God. 
There you go. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So as we have looked upward at the sovereignty of God, now we look inward and we see Mary's reaction. As she's looking inward, she says, uh, she gives a how. And she says, how? And notice that her how comes with a reason. She says, but I'm a virgin. And look at her attachment to that purity, to that staying right with God. Don't miss that. She loves that. She's all about that. She knows she's only engaged. She's not married yet. She says, how? For I'm a virgin. As we go on, you might say, look at this how and say, well, Zacharias did the same thing. But we see there is a difference in Zacharias. Zacharias is told he has a kid and he says, prove it. It's not a how will, it's how can God even do that? God, could I have an example? And here comes Mary saying, God, how will you do it? And I think that's a very important distinction because we're going to live our entire lives doing that. If you are following Christ, then aren't you waking up every morning saying, how, O Lord, will I worship you this morning and evening? Aren't you going into every relationship saying, how, oh Lord, can I glorify you here as I go into work? How, God, are you going to work today and make yourself known to me today? God, how will I get rid of this bitterness that I've been holding on to towards a family member? God, how will I have the patience to deal with another day of monotony? Every day we say, how, God, because we can say, how will you? Because we know he will. Because we have the reassurance that comes with the fact that he's, it's his will, he tells us, it's my will that you follow my commands. We have the reassurance knowing we obey. We have the reassurance of God's promises, of God's working in our hearts. We have that reassurance so we no longer have to wait for some kind of proof to go follow a command that is so clear. I no longer have to wait for comfortability in my heart before I go worship God. That's going to be uncomfortable. I no longer have to wait for, uh, you know, a good time to evangelize and tell someone about God. It's like waiting for the battle to end so I can finally join the fight. We do not need to wait for a moment of perfect clarity before we go follow a command that God has made right before us. Don't you dare wait for a sign before you glorify. Don't wait for a calm heart before you evangelize. And then the angel, unprovoked unnecessarily, I think, but wonderfully gives Mary her reassurance. The angel points her to what's going on. The angel says, firstly, and, and wouldn't we love this, to have an answer to how will right away? She says, the, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That's how Christ will be born. And it's that word that's uh, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis. She says, if you need further proof of the improbable, uh, your sister Elizabeth, who had been barren all this time, is six months pregnant. She reminds her of other things God is doing. And then 37 reminds her of the, our ultimate reassurance that God will do anything for his glory and can do everything for his glory. What a wonderful truth when we're caught in the midst of how God to say, because he will, because he will be glorified. And that second half of Mary's practicality is a wonderful example of family. I know not all of us have the most traditional families, but this is, this is exciting. This is so fun that she goes and visits her sister. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I love that. A lot of people will tell you Peter was the first one to call Jesus Lord. Elizabeth does it before he's even born. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And, and there's, a, there's a humanness here. There's an excitement. There's a reality. I feel this in my own life. I love my brothers. I'm very close with my brothers. And uh, the best was when I was in college. And, you know, we would, uh, we would see each other for months. And then we'd have this reunion. And we would all gather. And our family would go off and do this, like, family update thing. And we would go hide because that's who we were. And so we'd go jump into the, like, car that we had fixed most recently and go take a joyride and just say, what is going on in your life? And I got to tell my brothers, as I had just been saved at college, about what Christ was doing for me and witness to them and just be so grateful. Worship with your family. I'm going to get on more of that in the as we turn to application at the end of this, but worship with your family. Seek to celebrate. I know it's not, not all of us have the same kind of family. Maybe it's smaller. Maybe your family is your small group Christmas party. Maybe your family is that one friend that's finally coming home or someone you haven't seen in forever, but worship with them. Tell them. It's just that phrase of, how are you doing? Well, God has been, and then answering, because you're telling them, God has done all of this. That's worship as a family. And then Mary has a reaction that should come with, with us when we look at Christ among humanity. She worships. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained there with her about three months and returned to her house. So there are two parts of this song as I read it. This, two parts of this outpouring of love, of excitement, of joy. She starts with the internal. She looks at what God is doing in her life. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's saying, my soul is finally showing me how big God is. Something that comes with looking at God's sovereignty. Something that comes with salvation saying, God is so in everything and over everything. And she says, look at this. And then she says, and because of that, I have joy. There's no other thing. She's got a lot going on. If we look at the reality of this, she's not even married yet. We know she's pregnant. There's that appearance of sin, and it would have been stressful. And the angel really didn't clear up that much. You know, there was still a lot to be questioned. And here she is worshiping, saying, I am rejoicing because God is in control, and God hasn't even done it yet. God hasn't even delivered yet. They're looking forward to that. We're going to celebrate that next week as we gather on Christmas, looking at the birth of Christ. He's not even here yet, and here Mary is rejoicing. That's why you and I stand together saying, you know, some glad morning I'll fly away, which is a very interesting song when you really think about it. It's like very jaunty about death, but it's joining Christ in heaven that we look forward to and we worship him now knowing we're going to be saved because we know he will do it. And then she looks at God corporately. She says, he who is mighty, 
He who is holy, he who shows mercy, he who has shown strength, he who brings up the lonely, he who fills the unsatisfied. God does this for all of us. His mercy is reached out to every person in here, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you think you've like really done and whatever sin you're pridefully holding on to, you're saying it's too big. All of that, God said, I've covered this and he is enough. And have you done this? In your walk, have you sat down and just looked at the character of God? These, he is mighty, he is merciful, he is strong, he is against sin, he brings out the lonely, and God never forgets. Have you read that and said, I know this about God, and I can't say this about anyone else? We look at you know, all the things we're trying to be, all the ways we're trying to mimic Christ and show him to the world, and we're failing over and over again, but God does it, and it's natural. It's part of his character. He can't be another way. That's not how God works. And we worship him for we know that he is the only satisfaction we'll ever have. He is the only, you know, filling to that emptiness. If you'll t- let me turn to the application. Nothing else this Christmas is going to save you. Nothing else is going to satisfy you. Things change Christmas will come, it will go, New Year's will come, and it will go. You will have a New Year's resolution. Scientifically, that'll probably go. You know, it won't work out. And yet, we put so much into it. We have these traditions that we grab onto. I've got a lot of married friends now. People keep getting married, okay? And uh, I've watched them deal with their family, right? How are you going to spend Christmas? And they're trying to work it out so they can still get in the family traditions and keep everyone happy while they're trying to start their own. Because things change, things different, people grow, people move. But here is God, unchanging. And all these years from the Old Testament, from Genesis, when he says, I'm going to have my son come from the tribe of Judah, from when he tells David, my, the Savior's gonna come from your line, all this time God has not forgotten. And yet we still get so caught up in what's changing that we don't look at what's steadfast. The ancient of days, God, Jesus Christ, who's still for us today. So what do we do about it? How does this affect your Christmas? What does this change in your life? When you look at the sovereignty of God, we have no choice but to worship. That is what we do. And I'm going to get a little bit more specific because you might say, well, does that mean just sing songs with my family? And I hope you do that. That would be actually adorable. Send me videos. I would love that. Do that. Worship God together. But it's so much more. And I love the way Colossians 3.17 puts it. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, and as I tell the youth group kids, we do a lot and we say a lot, don't we? Uh, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus while giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is how we worship. Uh, we did a youth group um, kind of sermon series on worship. Elliot remembers, right? Yeah, how a boy. And uh, we, we, we broke down that word. What does worship mean? And it's like the word friendship, where it's friend and then the indication of that and worth. It's, it's God's worth, it's saying, showing God's worth in your life, showing God's value in your life, saying, God, you are actually of more importance than anything else in my life. It's like when those people say, well, you know, it's first God, then family. Is it? Oh, first God and then work, is it? Does your life reflect that? Because that's what this is. That's what worship is. It's in everything you do saying, God, I'm going to show you more value. Practically, it's saying, God, I value you more than a rash retaliation to an insult. So I'm going to be quiet. 
I'm going to return a kind word, saying, God, I value you more than I value the praise of another, so I'll actually do things in your name. God, you are more to me than the disappointment of a friend, so I'm going to adjust my expectations of what I think I need. God, you are more to me than this anger I have towards a relative that I've decided doesn't need to hear the name of Jesus. Saying, God, you are worth so much that I'm going to obey your word before I start reasoning it out. God, you are worth so much to me that I'm going to humble myself and actually look at what you're doing and exalt others before me because I know it's in your word and I know I've been called to it. And what we do is we take that moment of worship where we say, God, I value you so much that I'm going to actually do what your word says. I'm going to believe it. And we stretch that moment over our entire lives, becoming a reasonable sacrifice to God, saying, you are worth everything, and everything I do is a reflection of that. That is the goal. That is what we're seeking to do. God, I value so, you so much. I place so much emphasis on you, and my life is so totally yours that I'm going to obey over reason. I'm going to trust before I theorize. I'm going to obey the entire word because you're worth that. And in here, a practical Christmas application. Uh, when we were young, um, I've got a baller family, raised us up just like Christ, right? So we, uh, before Christmas, would read the Christmas story. And we'd always start with this passage, actually. We'd always start with the angel. And it was, it was torture, because, you know, if you knew me and my brothers, we're all pretty rowdy. I'm sorry if you knew us growing up, it, we, we were a lot. But they would finally get us all set down, presents in the corner. We'd all be looking under there. I'd be like, is there a bike under there? And there wasn't. We did not have that big of a tree. We could not fit a bike under there. But I'd be like, what's under there? And we were stoked, and we were ready to go. And then mom and dad would pull out the Bible, and all of us would be like, oh, yeah, that part. Worst part is we traded years. So every year, a different brother would have to read the story. And there was... There was one brother that didn't read as fast, and in Brock's defense, he was seven years younger, all right? So, not mad at you, buddy. And so Brock would be, you know, struggling through this. Dad would be helping him, and it was, it was just wonderful. Read the Bible with your children. Show your kids scripture. Please do that. That is one of my favorite things. I, I'm so grateful for those memories now. Was not grateful in the moment. And here I would be saying, get through the scripture. I got things to do. And now I can't read this and run past the sovereignty of God. Now I can't read this and not be smacked with how much God loves me that he would have this plan to save me. There's no way I can just continue to run past the authority of God saying, I've got something else to do. I don't have that choice anymore, and I hope you don't. I hope you don't read and just enjoy the Christmas time and say, that was nice, but that you look at your Savior being sent to earth, being made like man, and saying, how? Why? That your heart is broken over his humility and that your mind is blown by his love. I hope that just reaches your heart. I hope that grabs you. I hope that changes everything about you. Do not run past the sovereignty of God in the name of busyness. Don't do it in the name of but the family tradition. Don't do it in the name of I can't believe they're here or that, you know, we just get so frustrated over the dumbest things when we have the sovereignty of God right in front of us saying I love you and we sit in that because we are no longer anticipating everything but sitting back and saying how are we going to worship God today? Don't get caught up in the going around that you run past the authority of God who ultimately sent his son, took your sin upon the cross, and was resurrected after he died so that you can have a wonderful relationship 
If you don't have that relationship or you have some kind of question, I'll be back there. I want to tell you all about it because it is rad and it has changed my life in so many ways, in every way. But if you do, are you worshiping God this season? Are you making it a point to reflect on what God has done in your life this past year? Are you making it a point to read scripture with your children, to point them towards the father that loves them so much that he would send his son? So in here, um, I'm going I'm to take away your excuse because uh, uh, you're kind of trapped here. And um, Dalton's going to come up and, and play guitar for about five minutes here or until God tells me to stop. And I'm going to sit right there, and we're just going to have a time of silence. And um, feel free to pray, to reflect. Feel free to just be quiet if you haven't had any in a moment to rest on God. I encourage you. I do this with our young adults a lot because we need it because we get so going. I want this just to be a moment that you can practically say, God, I love you. I'm going to rest in you for a moment. At the end, I'll come up and pray, and then we'll, we'll close our service with song.